Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecallendershow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Uh, no, I'm, the reason I said that about Australia's accent, I like the Australian accent because um, the Australian, uh, he's either president or something. He's the uh, prime minister, Anthony Albanese, which is weird that they let some Al- Albanese person be their leader in Australia. I mean, I would think he would like be in in Albany, but whatever. Um, yeah, he, he's speaking. Oh, hang on a second. Again, I got to plug him in. Partners in the Quad. Australia and America are supporting the connectivity of the region, and today we announced the new funding. See, they had a cool accent. I, yeah, I thought so. The Biden, anyway, Joe Biden is up there. They're going to do a, a news conference here. They're going to take questions from reporters. They're standing outside. So I don't know whoever was uh, in charge of putting together the cocktail for old Joe. That's uh, yeoman's work right there. Outside. Pretty nice out, though, so probably don't, doesn't have to worry too much about the dehydration and such. All right, anyway, let me get to this piece. This was from uh, a couple of weeks back, and I have just not gotten around to it, but it does tie into the topic at hand here. Um, it was over at Slate.com, which is just an awful publication. But um, the um, the piece was written by somebody named Iman Ismail, and the headline on it is, I documented book bans. I thought they were all hysteria. Then I opened one of the most controversial books. <laughs> so um, he went and got a copy of a book called It's Perfectly Normal. All right. He says there's no shortage. Or he tried to get one called uh, and it took him a while. Like the, the, the copies had vanished and whatever. Anyway, so he uh, I'm on. I think it's a he. I'm on, it could be a she. I don't let me see. Hang on. I don't want to mispronounce somebody. No, they don't tell me. Okay. So he writes, there's no shortage of books being used to panic parents into protesting their local schools or libraries. Concerns over books like The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison and All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson are easy to shrug off given how challengers contort themselves to argue that scenes involving sex are simultaneously promoting promiscuity and It's hard to believe that a child would accidentally stumble on certain hand-picked selections from novels that are hundreds of pages long. Yeah, because kids never tell each other about that sort of stuff, right? It's Perfectly Normal. That's the name of the book. This one's harder to just shrug away. It's not difficult to see why this book has been an effective cudgel, both in recent years and practically since it was published. Its images are particularly blunt and graphic. That articles and social media posts about parents' concerns over those cartoons have often blurred them out serves to prove their point. Earlier this year, he says a pastor in Asheville, North Carolina, made headlines after his microphone got cut off during a school board meeting. And he said, quote, if you don't want to hear it in a school board meeting... 
Why should children be able to check it out of the school system? In an interview with an eager Fox News host, that same pastor described it's perfectly normal as, quote, hardcore porn. On the cover, it says it's intended for ages 10 and up, a point noted over and over again by rage baiters wanting to frame the book as nefarious, somehow grooming children. Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor and presidential candidate, cited it as justification for his controversial Parental Rights in Education Act, or as I call it, the PREA. So this author, this writer at Slate, which is a leftist rag, says, I felt sure that as a 34-year-old father of two, okay, it is a dude, okay. I felt sure, well, well, hang on, I don't know that. It could just be, okay, never mind. As a 34-year-old father of two, I felt sure that uh, there would be nothing in there that would offend my sensibilities. I heard nothing but glowing reviews from sex ed pros about the, uh, the child-friendly language in the book. But flipping through the book's pages, finally, I was a little shocked. I had an involuntary reaction to seeing the nude cartoons. Like, I needed to make sure I was alone and hide the book. I skimmed ahead to look at the rest of the book briskly. On virtually every page that I stopped to examine, I was confronted with detailed drawings of genitals. I felt like every page had a cartoon of a naked body. On page 9, I came across the first illustration I recognized from the controversy. In the chapter, titled Making Love, there are three graphic images that show adult bodies having sex. There is no visible penetration, but it's still eye-popping. I was sure I would not hand this book to my kids when they are 10. And I began to wonder if my own allergy to the book-burning fervor, I had been, that uh, maybe I'd been a little too dismissive of the parents at the root of this fight. By the way, spoiler alert, no, he... He comes back around to the leftist position, but don't worry. He says, it's perfectly normal, the book, more than any other frequently banned title that I have flipped through, challenged my view. The images are not, quote, pornographic, and it's obvious that anti-gay sentiment is partly fueling the objection to the book, but the images are graphic. See, so it's not pornographic. They're just graphic by showing the porn, (laughs) by drawing cartoons of the sex happening, that's not pornographic. It's just graphic, you see. And it's startling to me to think that they are intended for kids who aren't even in middle school yet. I realize my kids will be able to see worse on the internet before I know it, but I still wondered, is it so crazy not to want them to be able to find this in the library? He then, in order to, I guess, uh, ensure that he gets back onto the the right side of thinking here. He goes and he calls up a sex educator named Melissa Pintor Carnegie, Carnegie, Carnegie. In navigating the book, I struggled to identify which illustrations felt necessary and which felt gratuitous and inflammatory to parents who might be even more prudish and queasy than I am. So he's, he's stumbling here on something that's like, Different parents have different standards, and so maybe they should be in control of determining this. No? 
which is what the parents are asking for. Because they're not book bans. They're saying you, you can't just give these and make them accessible to all kids because some parents might not want their kids to get access to these materials. Carnegie advised, though, that confidence is key. Quote, there's nothing wrong or bad with you as an adult or parent. If this feels uncomfortable, you learned that. And we can unlearn. Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness the author must be feeling like so relieved here, right? Ah, I was just taught to be uncomfortable with showing children the graphic pornographic images. Ah, I can unlearn this by sexualizing them, by grooming them into thinking that this is all okay and natural and this is what you do right now and you're a child, you don't even understand what this is all about, but we're going to, we're going to make you feel more comfortable with this, groom you into this way of thinking. Oh, sorry, did I say the grooming word? What all these parents, including me, are chasing is a very illusory sense of control. Ah, there it is. So now, see, it's, it's not even about the images. It's about parents losing control over their child. That's really the thing. As I got further into the book, I began to see it in the way Carnegie does, as a meaningful book intent on destigmatizing everything from puberty to sex, birth, and STDs. In other words, desensitization works. I mean... Mr. Ismail did not say that, but that is what he's describing. Desensitization works. Grooming works. Something that pedophiles have known for a very, very long time. Congratulations, Mr. Ismail at Slate.com. Noting that his original revulsion and questioning, oh, wait, 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 maybe we shouldn't be sending this to kids. Like, you just got to suppress that, man. You just cram that feeling down. And you just keep watching the images, keep looking at them, and get your kids in front of these images and make them watch them, maybe get the clockwork orange things to keep their peepers open, and uh, they'll eventually come around to it. Don't you worry. You can unlearn those things. What, uh, oh. Do we want? All right. Well, I guess we probably should take this. Spencer, stay on the line. I promise I will get to you. Let's take a listen. This is Mike Johnson, the newly elected Speaker of the House. Emeritus. Kevin McCarthy. What? Really? This is what we joined it to hear. Kevin has dedicated over two decades of his life. All right, I'm out. I'm out. Um, Yeah, I mean, I understand why you got to do those things, but whatever. All right, Spencer, welcome to the program. Spencer, just uh, you have a position of honor here. Uh, you, I just bumped the Speaker of the House for your call. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. It's a, you are being honored and feted. Okay. I always say feted because I think if you say feted, it sounds like like F E T I D, and that's not at all the same thing. So, uh, yeah, that's anyway. eggs, yeah, exactly. So, what's going uh, on? Anyhow, uh, my comment is, I was in this stuff from the start. Way back in the 60s, um, and it's mostly laziness. I mean, I remember when new math came out. I must have been in the sixth grade or so. And what it amounted to essentially was laziness on the administration's part because they didn't want to teach. They wanted the kids to learn on their own. So they had these little 
things in the book, you know, to break the numbers apart and do this and that and the other and and uh, make it where the teacher didn't have to really teach. So they would do things like, you know, break the numbers up and have tens. And instead of, you know, carry the one and go to the next column, you know, they mm-hmm. didn't want to do that. That, that. that wasn't really good. And it boils down to rote memory. You drill and drill and drill and drill and drill, and when you drill enough, you will remember that. I mean, how did you learn the ABCs? You sung that little song, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. You learned the ABCs that way. And I'm sure there are many people right now who are going down their alphabetical order, trying to put things in order, that will go through that song <laughs> to find the place where uh, G is. Mm-hmm. No, that's how I learned to defend myself. Wax on, wax off as well. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, it, it just, it's just getting out of hand. The teachers don't want to teach, and they think that if they put these screens and these uh, uh, devices and stuff in front of the kids, they're going to pick it up on their own. Well, no, they won't. Yeah, that does seem like that. So, yeah, I appreciate the call, Spencer. Good to hear from you, man. Yep. All right. Uh, yeah, no, it's an interesting thing, this idea, this concept. Laziness is the reason why it's an interesting thought. Uh, yeah, I don't want to bother going through it. Okay. Let me uh, let me jump over here real quick. This is Mike Johnson. He's the new Speaker of the House. Uh, he's he's still speaking right now, but I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm, this is off of C-SPAN, so just by the nature of the way that they have their audio and video feeds set up, uh, it may just stop at some point because I had to start it over from the beginning in order to get back to the part I needed to get to. So anyway, this is from uh, just moments ago on the floor of the uh, House of Representatives. This is, again, Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House. I want to say to the American people, on behalf of all of us here, we hear you. We know the challenges you're facing. We, we know that, uh, that there's a lot going on in our country domestically and abroad, and we are ready to get to work again to solve those problems, and we will. Our mission here is to serve you well, to restore the people's faith in this house, in this great and essential institution. My my dad, it was mentioned my dad was a firefighter. He was an assistant chief in the fire department in my hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana, a little town in northwest Louisiana. On September 17, 1984, when I was 12 years old, he was critically Uh, burned and permanently disabled in the line of duty. All I ever wanted to be when I grew up was the chief of the fire department in Shreveport. Um, But after the explosion on that fateful day, he nearly died, and it was a long road back, and it changed all of our life trajectories. I'm the oldest of four kids, and and my dad, um, he lived with pain all the rest of his life for decades more, and I lost my dad to cancer three days before I got elected to Congress, three days. And he wanted to be there um, at my election night so badly. Um, I'm the first college graduate in my family. This was a big deal to him. And um, so it was several weeks after that, it was early 2017, 2017, uh, it was my freshman term. And, and um, it, it fell to me to be in the rostrum one night to serve here as Speaker Pro Tem. I thought that was a big deal until I figured out that's what you do for freshmen late at night. <laughs> And I, I want to, I think if my memory serves, Miss Jackson Lee was, um, was winding down one of her long, eloquent speeches. 
and not, not that I was not in, enraptured by her speech, but I, I looked, up, looked up at the top in, in uh, the chamber there, and I saw the face of Moses staring down. And um, I just felt in that moment the weight of this place, right? The, the history that is revered here and the future that we are called to forge. And I really was just kind of almost overwhelmed with emotion. It occurred to me in that moment, it had been several weeks, and I had not had an opportunity yet to grieve my dad's passing. And, and um, I just had this sense that, that somehow he knew. And, and I had tears come to my eyes, and I was standing here, and I'm wiping them away, and then it suddenly occurs to me, the late-night C-SPAN viewers are going to think something's very wrong with the new young congressman from Louisiana. It, it wasn't Sheila's speech. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just knew in that moment that my, my, my dad, my father, would be, would be proud of me, and I felt that he was. And, and I think all of our parents are proud of what we're called to do here. I think all the American people at one time had great pride in this institution. But right now, um, that's in jeopardy. And we have a challenge before us right now to rebuild and restore that trust. This is a, a beautiful country. It's the beauty of America that allows a, a firefighter's kid like me to come here and serve in this sacred chamber where great men and women have served before all of us and strive together to build and then preserve what Lincoln did refer to as the last best hope of man on earth. We stand at a very dangerous time. I'm stating the obvious. We all know that. The world is in turmoil. But a strong America is good for the entire world. All right, so that's Mike Johnson. The, uh, the, new, oh, the new Speaker of the House. I'm going to st- uh, stop it right there because I have a feeling that it's about to get cut off. And that's a good stopping point. So uh, if you didn't know anything about Mike Johnson, there's a bit of background in how he got into Congress and a little bit about his uh, life story. He's still speaking, actually, uh, right now. Let me jump over here and get Bob on. It's walking Bob. What's going on, Bob? How are you? Hey, P. I, I'm, I'm glad we got a speaker now, but this is important. And and. You know, I am on my walk, that's true, but I'm in impeccable shape. So I think I may sound winded because I'm so upset with you. So Uh I apologize for the nature of my voice. (laughs) But when you're righteously mad, don't ever apologize for that. All right. You know what I'm saying? I do, yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about two things that are near and dear to me. All right. Dan Quayle and potatoes. Now, before I, because I I, I like both of them in in different ways. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Obviously, I think, but uh, Dan Quayle is the George Washington of the culture war, mm-hmm. because when he, what he said about Murphy Brown is that was not family values, mm-hmm. and that family values became just probably the phrase of the year, or whatever year. Yeah, it was, was weaponized. And then, you know. It's uh, uh, Murphy Brown addressed it yep. in the comedy show the next week. Right. But anyway, I want to talk about the, the potato, which, just full disclaimer, uh, please see your Ph.D. weight loss agent about the potato uh, for more important information. Because the potato does end in E. Bill E, but also... E.E. So Dan Quayle was totes railroaded, I mean, totally. Us cool kid, or us uh, dope kids say totes instead of totally. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was totes railroaded by that potato thing. They were working 
off of flashcards. Correct. And the flashcard had an E. And the teacher knew it had an E. And uh, that was presented, I'm pretty sure if memory serves me correctly, as a possible point of confusion and embarrassment for the vice president. So you're saying it was a setup. He got set up by a teacher at the photo op. He was set up. If George Bush was alive today, he would kill himself just so he could roll over in his grave. It was Mm. a total setup. And, uh, you know, to see two things that I cherish, like Dan Quayle and potatoes that are just totally dissed in the, in the same moment in time mm-hmm. in history. I, okay, now, well, in my defense, I'm so mad. in my defense, I didn't think I dissed either of them. You said something about he messed up potato. No, I said, yeah, I said, no, he was wrong about potato. That. He was wrong about the potato, the spelling of potato, which he was. Because, look, you're the, no. he's the last gatekeeper, man. I mean, the guy's a Rhodes Scholar. I, look, I didn't call him stupid because he wasn't. Everybody, that's the, everybody, the media made him into this caricature of an idiot. But the guy was a Rhodes Scholar. He was really, really smart. And he got the card. You're absolutely correct. He had the card, and it was misspelled. And when the kid spelled it and he corrected the kid— and that became proof that Dan Quayle is an idiot. But um, but he, it was up to him to recognize, like, I would say, like, you get the card, and maybe it's one of those things where, like, you write the word, and you're looking at it, and you're like, that doesn't look right. Is that the way you spell that? And it turns out it is the way you spelled, but just for some reason it didn't look right. Maybe that's what happened to him. But, like, he should have known that that's not how you spell, but you, you don't put, unless you're doing plural, you know? Well, the, he... Yeah, but he he either had to correct the student or correct the school. I mean, what was he supposed to do? I think he was just trying to, you know, just trying to go along because potato with an E at that time and maybe still today is an acceptable spelling of potato. No, it's not. uh, No, it's not. Dictionary, Webster Dictionary, which they they look conservative, but they're liberal. Yeah, they are. They probably changed the spelling oh my right goodness. after that. No, stop it, Bob. Bob, are you a potato truther? Put it up. Are you a, are you a ta- are you a tater truther here, Bob? Is that what I'm hearing? You're a tater truther. We we, we call we call that factual fries. <laughs> but you Google it up. And you can and you can get you can get this truth, uh, southern fried, broiled, microwaved in seven to eight minutes. You can get this truth any way you want it. All but right. The truth is is that you can spell potato with an e, and no harm will come to you or your family. Unless you're the vice president and the Republican. Oh yeah, well worth that. Right. Yeah, of course. All right, Bob. I appreciate the call. Good luck on the rest of your walk. I'm not on board with the tater trutherism though. Not going to happen. Hey, so real quick, hurricane season is here, and this is your reminder to check your emergency supplies. You should have a three-day supply of food, water, and medicines, minimum. And Carolina Readiness Supply can help you get started or expand your supply. Food, water purifiers, lighting, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies too, because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you can use for any kind of emergency. Whether you're an experienced prepper or you have no clue what you're doing, or maybe you're somewhere in between, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you in Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply, will you be ready when the lights go out?
Let me go over here and get uh, Snake onto the program. Hello, Snake. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, Pete? Hey. Oh, you know, same old, same old. What's up? I didn't catch your whole show, but I heard some guy making reference to Dan Quayle, and I guess you must have said something that offended him about Quayle. I don't know. Um, you know, I told a producer, I'm, I am a conservative. I am a Republican. But I don't like politicians in general. And that guy, he fits the bill. I, I, I spent about an hour with him one-on-one a while back. Oh, really? And he's got the IQ of a potato, and he's got the morals of a politician. Wow. It's just, oh, my goodness. It's, it's just that. I, I mean, you hate to say that, but that's just the truth of the matter. Yeah, well, I mean, you would know more than I. I was a kid when uh, he was uh, vice president, and we would, I brought him up in relation to the Murphy Brown story. Uh, with the family values, and he made the comment about the the sitcom and how they were promoting, uh, you know, the single motherhood and all of that, and then it became this huge national culture war story. And uh, and then I said, and on and going into the break, I said, but he was wrong about potato. He was wrong about okay, this. Okay, so yeah. let me. I'll just I'll tell you this story. This guy he starts telling me this story, and I guess it was when he ran for Congress for the first time. Maybe he ran for. U.S. House or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I believe he was a... I think he was a representative. Maybe a senator first, yeah. yeah. So he starts telling me the story. And he's telling me the story about how when he announced for Congress, I think it was I think it was U.S. House, and he says, so I had this whole day planned, and I forget what city it was in, but he said, he said then there was like a, a fire in a building, and a bunch of people were killed. And he and he's telling me this story with a, and he's serious mm-hmm. and he's and he's going and here's what gets me and he's like in all seriousness like can you imagine what bad luck I had wow I'm like did you just say that dude I didn't say that to him right. because he's who he is but I, but I'm thinking like he that's really how he felt about that yeah I'd say something like that maybe he had bad uh, luck when a bunch of people were killed in the fire right because it messed up his events or whatever his, yeah. And I'm thinking, dude, I just I, I got to go take a shower when this when this is over. Yeah, that's I yeah, I, I might have said something like, uh, "Well, your luck wasn't as bad as you know the people that died." I I, I, I didn't I was speechless. Yeah, it, it, it got worse from there. That's like the first five minutes. Yeah, interesting. Well, road scholar maybe, but empathetic not so much. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, all right, Snake. That's no, it. he wasn't too bright either, buddy. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what kind of scholar he was, but I can just tell you. Okay. All right. I appreciate the call, Snake. Thank you, sir. I did not know that. I uh, never heard that story before. That's, gosh, that's awful. Um, let me get this in real quick because uh, it's a couple weeks old and I don't want the, the story to go unmentioned, which is nationwide lockdowns in the United Kingdom during the pandemic were a failure of public health policy as they were not considered a last resort. That, according to an epidemiology expert giving evidence at the COVID-19 public inquiry a couple weeks ago, Professor Mark Woolhouse of the University of Edinburgh, a member of the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Modeling, or as I call it, the SPIMO, said that the group failed to adequately assess the negative consequences of a nationwide lockdown. (gasps) No. The harms of the social distancing measures, particularly lockdown, the economic harms, the education harms, 
uh, harms to access to health care, harms to societal well-being, just the way we all function, mental health. They were not included in any of the work that the SPIMO did. As far as I could tell, no one else was doing it either, he told the inquiry. Quote, I take the view that it would have been very helpful if the government said explicitly, we don't want to go into lockdown. What's your advice? How can we minimize the health burden and stay out of lockdown? And then we could have given a lot of advice and all the other things you could do other than the lockdown. The question of how to avoid a lockdown was never asked of us, and I find that to be extraordinary. Although uh, Woolhouse told the inquiry that he supported the lockdown at the time, with hindsight, he questions whether the measures were entirely necessary before adding that lockdown was, quote, a failure of public health policy. He added, quote, I think it's fair to do, I think it's fair to describe lockdown not as a public health policy, but as a failure of public health policy. Lockdown is what you do when all of those other things you know you can do have not worked. It's a last resort, and it should always be that in my view. Slowly, slowly, slowly. And then very quickly. It's the way these things go. But this stuff is is getting out. All right, Brett Winnable is up next. Stick around. I will see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.